Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I was working for a church in London, I had a telephone call from the front desk saying that Carol and John Richards were in reception for me. Carol and John Richards, I said. I wasn't expecting to see anyone this morning. The receptionist put me on hold and then came back to me after a little while and explained Carol and John were passing through the West End and they just thought they'd pop in and say hello. Pop in and say hello, but I don't know anyone called Carol and John Richards. The receptionist dropped her voice on the other end of the line because obviously they were just close by and she said they were members of the last church you were in. They attended your Bible study every, every week. I was mortified. I couldn't remember these people at all. So I left my desk, walked down the stairs to reception and hoping all the time that as I, when I fix eyes on them I'd remember them. As I walked into the reception I, I looked at them and I still didn't recognise them but still I stuck out my hand and said, Carol, John! like you do and they said to me you're not Paul Williams (laughs) to which I replied oh yes I am I couldn't think of anything else it was a bizarre conversation but the confusion was soon cleared up it turned out that they were members of a church in Bristol Christ Church Clifton where another clergyman called Paul Williams had been the curate He'd moved to northwest London to a church in Gerrard's Cross where he became vicar and when Carol and John heard that Paul Williams was working at All Souls Church in London they assumed that it was their Paul Williams as they put it. Now, oh look, I have actually met this other Paul Williams. He is a very nice man but it goes without saying that while we share the same name and even the same profession we are not the same person. Well, look, it's an easy mistake to make. No harm was done. We all had a laugh about it and carried on our way. But far from harmless would be to make the same mistake with Jesus Christ. Now that would be no laughing matter, but tragically it is happening all the time through churches all around the world and even here in this city. There are many people who sincerely believe they're following Jesus, but when they describe the Jesus they're following, it becomes clear the one they're following is not the historical Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus they follow shares the same name as the real Jesus and may appear to share the same profession, but ask them about the one they follow and it becomes clear that they are following another person altogether. I met somebody recently and as we discussed what happened beyond the grave, they said to me, the Jesus I follow embraces everyone. The Jesus I follow would never reject any person. Now it may sound grand, but if you follow a Jesus who saves everyone on the final day, you are not following the authentic Jesus of the Bible. You see, the historical Jesus said, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. The historical Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those words bring this issue into very sharp relief. What a tragedy it would be to get to the end of our lives and to find ourselves in a heavenly reception area and for Jesus to walk in and for you to say, you're not Jesus Christ. What a disaster to discover at that moment that all my life I have been following 
another person. Someone who shares the same name but who is not the same person as the real Jesus. What a calamity to hear the all-powerful creator of the universe say to you or to me, chapter 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. It would be a catastrophe beyond description, but it is such an easy thing to do. For there are many Jesuses being proclaimed today. And not just out there in the big, big bad world, but in the church. In the church worldwide, you can find a plethora of Jesuses, and they all appear to be authentic. There is something true about all of them. A large church movement from Australia and now spreading across Britain and the US presents a Jesus who promises employment and wealth and material blessings to all real followers of his. I can think of a famous evangelist who speaks of a Jesus who promises health, healing anyone who has enough faith. Think of theologically liberal churches who teach a Jesus who makes no demands on his followers in the sexual arena or in their religious preferences. So if you want to be a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, providing you're sincere in your faith, then that's just fine with their Jesus. Now do you see there are many different Jesuses out there and you will discover all the Jesuses that I've just described in churches in Sheffield. Now it is pretty obvious why following another Jesus appears to be so attractive. Who doesn't want to be wealthy or healthy? And following a Jesus who never makes demands on my moral lifestyle, who will never tell me how to use my sexuality or my money or my career or how to conduct my relationships, that sounds a very, very appealing option. But as alluring as it may sound, Remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, because there will be nothing worse than to hear from the real Jesus on the final day those haunting words, away from me, you evildoers. Well, the only way we can be sure we're following the real Jesus is to bring our ideas about Jesus in line with the historical Jesus of the Bible. And to be sure we are doing that here, Over the next four weeks, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, Matthew will introduce us to the genuine Jesus of history, the real deal, as we call this series. And as we begin this evening in verses 1 to 8, we'll discover the real priority of the real Jesus. And it may be a huge shock to us, and my guess would be some of us will have to realign our thinking and probably change some of our living when we see what Jesus' priority is. Now, before we get really stuck into these verses, another word, if I may, uh, of introduction. Uh, What do you think is your your greatest need? What is your greatest need? I know if you're an Australian, your greatest need at the moment is you get a decent rugby rugby team, uh, but that apart. uh, What is your greatest need? Students, what is your greatest need? I guess if you're still feeling a bit lonely since arriving in Sheffield, you may think your greatest need right now is to find a really good close friend while you're here in Sheffield. That is no small thing. That is a need. As time goes on, you may think your greatest need is to do well in your exams, to get the qualification, to get onto your chosen career path, which in turn will deliver all the things that bring happiness and security in life. They're great things to want. 
As I ask others of you, what is your greatest need? Maybe you don't think about personal needs, but of huge global needs that face the world. Global warming, global poverty, global terrorism. If you're politically aware, during this politically party political conference season, you, you may feel your greatest need has been addressed by your party. Maybe it's abolishing inheritance tax or or dealing with the problem of rising gun crime or building more prisons, putting more money into the health service or education or dealing with immigration or all those issues. And they're all important issues, aren't they? They really are. There are so many huge issues in the world, real issues, pressing issues, important issues. But what is our greatest need if we could strip it all away? What is the greatest need of every man and woman and boy and girl in this world? Well, as we turn to Matthew chapter 9, we discover the real priority of the real Jesus is to deal with our greatest need. And it might be quite a shock for some of us. Look, we're finally in the text. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town, and some men brought him a paralytic lying on a mat. It's obvious what these men wanted from Jesus. You don't have to be a great Bible scholar to understand what this is all about. They were convinced that Jesus could heal their paralysed friend. And they had good reason to think that he could. By this time in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus healing others. At the beginning of chapter 8, he was healing a man with leprosy. In verse 13 of of chapter 8, healing a centurion's servant. In verse 15, healing Peter's mother-in-law. I'm never quite sure whether Peter was pleased about that or not, but we'll assume he was. Healing Peter's mother-in-law. And in verse 16, healing many other people, many others. See verse 16? When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Already by this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus healed many people. So no wonder these men brought their paralysed friend to Jesus. They really believed Jesus could do something. See, chapter 2, verse 9 is very interesting. Jesus saw their faith. They believed Jesus could heal their friend. And so they put their friend on a stretcher and carried him to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, verse 2, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. No, he didn't. That's not what he said at all. That is the great surprise here. Look, I know many of you have read this many, many times and so you know what he says and it's not a surprise. But it ought to be a huge surprise. Jesus didn't say get up and walk. Not at first. That's what they wanted him to say. And really, as we're reading through Matthew's Gospel, that's what we expect him to say, isn't it? Particularly after we've seen all we've seen in Matthew chapter 8. But what he actually said was, verse 2, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if that is a surprise to us, and it should be, it would have been devastating to the paralysed man and his friends. What a disappointment this Jesus is. The real Jesus. It's obvious what this man wanted. He wanted his legs healed. It's clear he needed his legs healed. But here is Jesus talking about forgiving his sin. And so it begs the question, if this man had such an obvious need and such a real need... Why did Jesus not heal him? And why did Jesus talk about sins being forgiven? Now let me ask you, would the Jesus you follow act like this? Faced with this man? 
Well, look, here is the real Jesus, and faced with a very real need, the need for healing, Jesus speaks to this man of sin and forgiveness, and he does that because whatever it looks like, this man's greatest need is for his sin to be forgiven. Greater even than for his legs to be healed. Now, let me say that again so that we don't miss it. Whatever it looks like, this man's greatest need is for his sin to be forgiven. Greater even than his need of physical healing. Now listen, I don't say that lightly. That can sound really very pastorally insensitive, can't it? When people in this congregation have very serious physical needs. It's been hard for me this week talking to my dad on the telephone. I've spoken to him most days this week. He is in a lot of pain at the moment, a lot of pain. He's had an operation to deal with a serious infection in his leg and he is in extreme pain most of the time. It's hard to hear that. What dad would do to be free from the pain that he's suffering? It's hard to think of my dad in pain. I do pray that he would be free from that pain. But what is my dad's greatest need? Well, it's the same as this man and every person who's ever walked this planet. Our greatest need is that our sin is forgiven. For you see, every one of us is a sinner. And that is a very serious condition. Worse than paralysis, worse than poverty, worse than crowded prisons. Now, I've just made a big statement. And let me step back a bit. See, most people I I meet get, get edgy when there is talk about sin. Many people misunderstand what sin is. When I say your greatest need is to have your sin forgiven... When I say you're a sinful person, I'm not making a character judgment on you. I'm not saying you're a particularly bad person or that you're a social dropout. I'm not saying you're sexually perverse or financially crooked. This is not character assassination or defamation, but it is very serious. Because a sinful person is one who says no to God. Someone who doesn't want God to rule over them. We may believe in God, we even say our prayers, we may be religious and even attend church, but we are still all sinners. Before I became a vicar, I I used to work in in the newspaper business. And um, like any other guy in his 20s, I had huge ambition. I wanted to climb the corporate ladder. And the next rung on the ladder was my boss's job. I used to imagine having his job in his company BMW. I had a, a company mini metro. I wanted the BMW and I wanted his office. Oh, especially his office. It was a huge office with huge kudos. From time to time, I imagined being the newspaper sales and promotions manager, occupying that office and sitting in that magnificent swivel chair behind the boss's huge desk. I wanted his job. Not that I'd have ever told him that. He was a scary boss. So I never told him that I had his eye on his job and his car and his office. But one day, at the end of the day, when everyone except the cleaners had gone home, I I had to drop a report onto his desk so that he'd have it first thing in the morning. And as I went into his office, I found myself with an opportunity to try the office out. (laughs) To give the chair a bit of a test drive. And so I did. I sat down behind the desk. And to be sure that I, I really felt the part, I decided to pick up the telephone and call a mate. And as the telephone rang, I put up my feet on the desk and at precisely the time my friend picked up the phone, my boss walked into the office. 
And that was the moment when we both turned a very deep shade of red, but for very different reasons. And I said, oh, why aren't you at home? And on reflection, I now realise that I was in no position to be asking him the questions, even though I was sitting in the boss's chair. And I think it was then that I decided that I really ought to become a vicar. Um, (laughs) Or maybe it was then that he decided that I should become a vicar. But anyway, the point is, it was a horrible moment. And if that was bad for me, and it was, can you imagine how bad it will be when one day you and I discover that there we are, bold as brass and as large as life, sitting in God's place, on God's throne. And he walks in and we realise that all our lives we have assumed his position. Can you imagine what the living God will think of you and me? But you see, that is what we've all done. One way or another, we've pushed God out, probably very politely, because we're middle-class people who live in forward, many of us, so we're very polite, But all the same, we've pushed him out and we've assumed his position. We've thought we're number one, not him any longer. That's what we've all done. And that is why our greatest need is that we're forgiven. Forgiven for pushing him out of our lives. Forgiven and ready one day to meet the living God. Because to meet the living God and not to be right with our maker is the most calamitous thing that can ever happen to a human being. A bigger problem even than paralysis or loneliness or hopelessness or or anything else. Because this issue will determine where we spend the whole of eternity. And that is why Jesus said to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Not because he wasn't interested in the man's legs, but he knew what was his biggest problem. But until we understand that, Jesus' words will not only be a surprise to us, they appear to display a remarkable lack of concern and care. No doubt then, Jesus' words were a disappointment to the paralysed man and his friends, but to the religious leaders in the crowd, Jesus' words were blasphemy. Look at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is talking blasphemy. You see, sin, as we've just thought, is an offence against God. Sin is to sit in God's place. And so only God has the right to forgive sin. Ah, the teachers of the law knew that. Well, of course they did. They were teachers of the law. They had PhDs coming out of their ears. They were theologians. And that's why they reacted to Jesus as they did. As Jesus forgave this man his sin, it seemed to them that here was a man taking God's place, the very thing that we've just said is so bad. And that's why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Now again, as we see this, I have to ask, would the Jesus you follow take God's place? the real Jesus. Do you believe in in the Jesus who does this? The teachers of the law were outraged by it. Here's the question. Were they right to be outraged? Was Jesus guilty of blasphemy? But of course it all depends who he is. If he is just a man, then yes, he is indeed guilty of blasphemy. If you're following a Jesus who is nothing more than a man, or maybe just a prophet but not God then here he is blasphemous. You're not following the same Jesus. The question is, is he just a man? Well, the first three words of chapter 9, verse 4, go some way to answering that question. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts. 
Knowing their thoughts, verse 4 is very scary. Without them having uttered a word, Jesus knew what the religious leaders were thinking. Have you ever been in the presence of someone and you think they know what, they're th- what you're thinking? You know, headmasters seem to be like that, don't they? Head teachers. Have you ever been in their presence? You always think they know what you're thinking. It's very scary. Of course they don't, but you think they do, and that's very, very disconcerting. Here is someone who does. Whether you think he does or not, he does. That is very scary. He's seen and heard every thought of yours. Every thought. Who is this then who knows my every thought? Have you got it yet? And if we haven't got it, we can sit the little exam that Jesus set the teachers of the law in verse 5. Well, I'll read from verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? There's the exam. Now look, students here, if your exams are as easy as this one, then you are on for a winner. Your degree is going to be a cinch because this is my kind of exam. It's a multiple choice paper. There are only two possible answers and so you have a 50-50 chance of passing the exam even if you don't have a clue what the answer is. So which is easier, verse 5? To say to your sins are forgiven or to say to a paralysed man, get up and walk, which is easier? Well, if you think about it for a while, it's very easy. Imagine the situation this evening. Imagine there was a paralysed man before me now. I could easily say to him, your sins are forgiven because... Well, because there's no way of checking. You wouldn't know if it was true or not. He wouldn't know. No one would know because you can't see sins forgiven. But if there was a paralysed man in front of me and I said, get up and walk, well, you'd soon know whether I was genuine or not, wouldn't you? The point is, you see, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. And so, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. This is how one commentator explains it. Donald Hagner says this, since any charlatan can claim to forgive the sins of another, Jesus decides to demonstrate the unseen by the means of the seen. See, Jesus did this miracle to prove that he was more than a mere man. That he was God. And that therefore he was perfectly qualified to forgive sin because sin was against him. And it was an astonishing miracle. Again, those of you who are familiar with these things, please, when you read the Bible, try to, try to be amazed by it. Even if you've read it loads of times before, you see, not only did Jesus heal the paralytic, but it was instant. Verse 7, And the man got up and went home. Caroline and I have just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. So my mind's been going back to our honeymoon. We honeymooned in, in New Zealand because that's where she's from. As you can imagine, I have many wonderful memories from our three weeks down under. It's fantastic. I'd like to be there now because France beat them yesterday as well. What a great day it was. <laughs> well, anyway, no, not such a good day in our home. Don't, say it, don't tell Caroline I just said that. But anyway, there we are. I'd like to be there, but... As many happy memories of I, as I have of our, of our honeymoon, I'll never forget one moment when we came back from our honeymoon as I opened a note that told me that a 19-year-old from the congregation, Mark was his name, had broken his neck playing rugby. Uh, two years later, I had a telephone call at home from my mum to say the same thing had happened to my cousin Nick, again playing rugby. Both these men are still in wheelchairs. 
If either of them were to regain the use of their legs, it would be remarkable. We would call it a miracle. It's been years now. As the sensation came back into their legs and they were able to move their legs again, most of you, because your medics would be able to tell me, they would need months and months of physio to build their muscles again. It would be a miracle. It would be a miracle. But it would be nothing compared to this. See here, verse 6, Jesus said, get up, take your mat and go home. And verse 7, the man got up and went home instantly. Who can do that? Well, that's a question that's easy to answer, isn't it? Who can do that? Only God. And that is why Jesus healed this man, to prove that he was God and to demonstrate, therefore, that he was not blaspheming when he forgave this man his sin. It was a spectacular miracle. No wonder the crowd were awestruck in verse 8. But again, what an amazing verse verse 8 is. Did you notice it when it was read or did it just sort of sweep over you? Look at it carefully. It is remarkable. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Do you see the point? They've, They've missed the point. They marvelled at the miracle, but they missed the point completely. Verse 8, the crowd praised God who had given such authority to men. That's not the point of the miracle. The point is not that God had enabled men to do this miracle. The point of this miracle, verse 6, is to show that Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who has been given all authority from God, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, the one who has all authority over all things in the whole universe, that that one, the Son of Man, has authority and has authority to forgive sins. But the crowd missed it. They praised God because God had given authority to men. No! And how many people who follow Jesus or these many Jesuses are just like the crowd that day who missed the point. Many Christians today marvel at the miracle and think that the miracle of healing this man's legs was the most important thing that happened that day. No! That's not the point at all. The point is the real Jesus teaches us here that our greatest need and therefore his priority is to forgive sin and he has the authority to do that. Well, as we close, what does that mean for us? As we've met the real Jesus and as we've seen his real priority for life, what will that mean to us as we come face to face with the real Jesus? Well, the obvious thing is that we need to make Jesus' priority our priority. Above everything else, if we get this, we will want others to be ready to meet their maker so that they won't hear chapter 7, verse 23, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Now, please don't mishear me or misquote me. This is not to say that nothing else matters. I have not said tonight that the Christian has nothing else to say on any other issue. If Christianity is true, it will engage with every issue of life. Of course it will. Of course it will. If if this book is true, then you will find that it it gives you a complete and rounded world view so that you have something to say on all those global issues, global warming and global poverty and global terrorism and anything else. It will tell you about sport and it will tell you about pleasure and the arts. It will tell you about everything. Of course it will. 
But here we discover Jesus' priority. It is the salvation of men and women. And if I bring my life in line with his priority, that will influence how I use my time, my money, my strength, my abilities, my gap year, my university days, my retirement, my leisure, my everything. I will have this as my priority. Secondly, we will want to bring people to Jesus. You see, the paralytic's friends are are, are a great example to us. They hadn't quite got it, but they're still a great example. They brought their friends to Jesus, and and verse 2, Jesus saw their faith. I've grappled with this verse many times, and it seems to have caused me all sorts of trouble until this week, and I read Don Carson on it, and it made so much sense. Don Carson makes the point, this is what we do, isn't it, with our unbelieving friends. We bring them to Jesus. We bring them to Jesus in prayer, don't we? Do you do that? That's what I do. I think of my friends. They don't have any faith. But I must have faith that God can transform them and change them and make them Christians. And so I pray for them. I bring them to Jesus in prayer. Or I bring them to Jesus by inviting them to Christianity Explores. Or I bring them to Jesus by saying, can we read the Bible together where they'll meet Jesus? They don't have any faith, but I have faith that if I can introduce them to Jesus, that he will do a mighty thing of drawing them to himself. Isn't that right? Isn't that what this is telling us to do? Let me say a word to the students. It's lovely you've come. If you come here for the first time, we're thrilled. Thank you for coming back, those who come back. If you've come for the first time, it's great you've come. And if you've just arrived in Sheffield as a student, will you nail your colours to the mast? Tell people, it gets harder the longer it goes on, tell people you're a Christian. And then when you've told them, pray for them. Invite them along to things where they can hear about Jesus. Tell them that you're a Christian and say, would you like to read Mark's Gospel with me? It's remarkable how many people actually do want to do that. It'd be a great thing to do. Isn't that what you want to do when you see this? And thirdly, let me say, if you're not yet a Christian... Can I plead with you? Will you look into how you can have your sin forgiven? See, it is such a serious issue. Uh, Jesus actually shows us how serious it is when we look at his words to the teacher of the law in verse 4. See, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? What were these evil thoughts? They were saying, Blasphemy to Jesus. This verse is dripping with irony. The teachers of the law accused Jesus of blasphemy, but the greatest blasphemers here were the teachers of the law themselves because the teachers of the law were rejecting Jesus. That really is blasphemy. Or as Jesus puts it, that's evil. It's a strong word, isn't it? Again, I ask, would the Jesus you believe in use that word? Because here is the real Jesus using that word. Real evil is to reject him. Because he is God himself. He is the one who gives life and breath and everything. How wicked it is to reject him. And as we've seen already, we are going to meet him one day as our judge. And that is why it's so important to be forgiven. But listen, the good news is you can be. You can be forgiven. 
And that is the final twist in the tale. You see, we saw earlier that the most difficult thing Jesus did on this day was to heal the man. It was much harder to heal the man than to say your sins are forgiven because anybody can say that. Well, that's right. But on the other hand, and here's the twist, it is actually much harder for Jesus actually to forgive sins because for Jesus to forgive our sin, it's not just a matter of some words. For him to forgive our sin, he had to die on a cross. Dying in agony. Not just the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual agony of being separated from the Father. That was a very difficult thing to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, take this cup from me. That was a very difficult thing to do. So how kind of God... Here is Jesus, the, what's the phrase? The Son of Man, verse 6. The one with all authority in the universe. He has all authority over everything in the whole universe. And what does he do with that authority? He dies on a cross for our forgiveness. How kind. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, it is compelling to come face to face with your Son in the words of Matthew's Gospel. We thank you that even though many of us have perhaps read these words before, they're no less thrilling and exciting as we come face to face with the author of life itself. We thank you for showing us the real Jesus. We pray that you would help us to guard against following the charlatans that would pull us to follow another Jesus. A Jesus who at times looks so attractive and yet can't deliver. And as we see this real Jesus and see the real priority he has for the forgiveness of sin of men and women, we pray you'd help us to be obedient, those of us who are Christians, that we too would have that priority. And we pray for unbelievers among us, Please give them courage to want to look into these things. And we would ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.